Welcome and good morning, Trinity Bible Church, as well as those who are visiting. We're thankful that you're here for, uh, with us in this time of, of public worship. Uh, I do have one uh, uh, quick announcement uh, in reference to the men's Saturday morning uh, book study. We met last, uh, yesterday for the first time. We're covering the book, uh, The Enemy Within, and the author's name is Lundgaard. And it is a book about recognizing and dealing with your own sin nature or indwelling sin. It's a fantastic book. We had a small group. Many guys are reading the book. Some can't make it. Uh, we will be meeting again next week. Uh, we'll be covering chapter two. So if you're unable to come, if you do not have the book, um, I just recommend showing up. Uh, after next week, it won't be every week that we're meeting. It'll be every second and fourth Saturday of every month at 8 a.m. We'll meet upstairs. Um, I can't emphasize enough the importance of this particular issue, of the issue of indwelling sin. Uh, one of the things the author points out is oftentimes we talk about Satan, we talk about the world, talk about being tempted by those things. And, and he rightly points out, uh, biblically, Satan and the world tempt you through your indwelling sin. So to understand how to wage war with that, that is why we're gathering on Saturday mornings. I recommend, if you don't even have the book to come, Talking to one of the gentlemen that was there yesterday morning, perhaps you don't want to come because you're thinking of it as like, I'd have to sit down in a room with other guys and talk about my struggles with indwelling sin. And I just want to change your mind a little bit and rather say it exactly in those words, but this way, I get to sit down <laughs> with a group of men and discuss indwelling sin and how to conquer it, because that's how you should look at it. And I also want to say, this isn't even a men's book. This is just a general book on the, the reality of indwelling sin. Anyone can read it. I recommend it to anyone. I'm going to start filling up the library with them. And much like the Masculine Mandate last year and other books that we've talked about, uh, this does not supersede the Bible. Rather, you take the Bible right alongside while you're reading it, and you look when they're quoting the texts, and you read it, and you see if they're accurate, and they are, and then you just continue along with the study. So... Uh, if you are male and an adult, I just want to invite you, even if you don't have the book, 8 o'clock on Saturday morning, we'll meet upstairs. That's it. Now, as we look forward to the continuation of this, as we go through the, the gospel according to Matthew, we are still in chapter 21. This morning, we'll be covering verses 23 through, uh, through 27. Uh, I will read out loud the verses, and after the time of the, the reading, give you the opportunity to pray silently. Pray that God the Holy Spirit would illuminate your mind to the truth of the Word. Draw and turn your affections away from dead works and false idols you've created. And be transformed more and more to the image of Christ as you render those things as you should. They are dead, therefore destroy them and cast them out of your life by the power of the Spirit and the Word. After this time of silent prayer, I'll pray for us corporately and we'll 
continue in the time of the Word. They're now reading from Matthew 21, verses 23 through 27. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd. For they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Please take this time to pray. (coughs) Excuse me. Heavenly Father, as your church gathers here on the Lord's Day, we already have celebrated in public worship the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Through our voices lifted in praise, through our prayers both individual and corporately, through our fellowships of the saints, our celebration of our shared union in Christ, through God the Holy Spirit. Now, Lord, I pray as your people hear your word that the Holy Spirit would be shaping and molding them from inwardly, transforming them more and more into the image of Christ. That the word, active, true, and living, would show us the places in our hearts and our minds that we've dedicated to other things, that we've elevated above Christ. Lord, show us those that we might topple them, that we might be moved to a purer, more devoted faith. God, strengthen your people this morning through your word. Lord, I pray, challenge us through your word. And ultimately, in this, comfort us by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That while dead in our sins and trespasses, the perfect, sinless, 
Creator God in eternity past loved us and sent His Son for us to be our sacrifice and take the curse of God in our place. Lord, that so we might be strengthened in this life, living in a fallen kingdom, surrounded by a sinful world, tempted by our own indwelling sin, the world and Satan, drive us to a purer love and a greater devotion to Christ our Lord and the blessed hope of his return. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This, uh, this back and forth that we see in, in 21 where, where Christ is coming in his triumphal entry and he's, he's overturning the moneylenders tables and we've, we've talked about that as well as, as what we see him going out and then now coming back as, as, as in last Sunday looking in, at the curse of the fig tree and calling um, on a faithless Israel and in that illustration of, of the tree. And now it, it, it kind of seemingly is skipping forward again as, as he's back in the temple, entering the temple, and not just entering the temple, but teaching. And so now, uh, as we've seen throughout Matthew's gospel, as I've probably mentioned too many times, the way that Matthew writes it is these different groups that pertain to Jesus and where he is. And you have the crowds, which is a mixture of people that are there to just watch or hear or see or eat or be healed or, or any of these things. And from some of them, you have people who will generally become disciples or proselytes that, that come to faith through the, through the, the witnessing and the, the, the work of Christ, ultimately through his own choosing. And then you have his, these opponents, the opponents being generally uh, in Matthew's gospel, the scribes, the Pharisees, and elsewhere in other gospels, the Sadducees and other religious leaders, those who made up the Sanhedrin, uh, which was the ruling religious body of Israel. And while there are other groups, the Herodians, the Zealots, and the Essenes, generally the Pharisees and the Sadducees are put forward because of they were of higher numbers of representatives in that ruling council of the Sanhedrin. But now we have another interesting group that we have. Now that he's in the temple, if you'll see, the chief priests and the elders. Now the chief priests were those who were in charge or had authority over the temple and the way that it was worshipped itself. And so then you also had the elders. The elders were, a, were something that had happened far back in the Old Testament, were established under the time of Moses, in particular by by Jethro's suggestion to Moses, Jethro being Moses' father-in-law, when Moses was rendering judgment to all these kind of civil cases, his father-in-law told him it was not good and he needed to delegate more. And so leaders from each tribe were chosen and they were given the title elders. And so this is kind of a tradition that's continued even far now into the time of Christ. A millennia and a half later, uh, from the time of of Exodus, and so now you have these two groups. 
the people who are generally in charge with the worship and the ministry and the teaching roles within temple itself and those who were seen as kind of tribal community slash leaders within Israel itself. And they, Jesus is there, he's in the temple, and he's teaching. And there's a few things to consider. Number one, this wasn't something that you could just walk in and do. You didn't can walk into temple around the time of Passover, take a box and stand on it and begin teaching from Torah or wherever it was. There were rules and there were authorities over who got to do that. And if you're following along even a little bit, you understand where I'm going. So the individuals that are approaching Jesus as he's teaching are the ones who were considered the authorities over who got to teach in a temple setting. Now, this is where, of course, you know, the disingenuousness comes along from the opponents of Christ. The opponents of Christ knew full well who he was, at least knowing who his name was, knowing where he come from, knowing where he came from, knowing though why are you saying that? Newing, making newing words. Uh, recognizing who was with him and where they were from, as well as all of the things that were attributed to him. This isn't the first time Jesus has come to temple and teach in it in the previous three years. He was known. The things whispered about what he was able to do and what he had done and what so many witnesses had seen him do were well attested and well witnessed. He had a large following. He was what you would call at the time a well-known and even famous rabbi or teacher. But not just that, the things that they'd heard or maybe even seen or certainly witnesses had given testimony about throughout these three years as this man healed lepers. And we know that because there's Bob and he used to be a leper and now he's not anymore. There were no Bobs in first century Israel. Sorry for that. And he was and he gives testimony to the fact that that's the one who made him clean. And he was once cast out from all societal functions, and now here he is worshiping in the temple. There's another one. He used to live in the garrisons, and he wore chains, and he didn't have any clothes on, and he was crazy, and now here he is talking. Remember her in the court of the women. She used to bleed uncontrollably and she was cast out also from all social and religious functions for a dozen years, yet here she is. She also says he's the one that did it. See, we can go on and on and on and take all the time this morning just from this one gospel account and go through all the things that Jesus had done that were well known, not just throughout the territory of Palestine in the first century, but in Jerusalem itself. His disciples were made from fishermen to tax collectors, and on every strata of society were those, his, his circle that he had gathered around him, the twelve. But not only that, those who had become believers or followers of Christ included Roman centurions, 
Pharisees and officers of the Pharisees. Uh, this was a who's who of society who made up those who believed in Christ. So when they approached them, they used technicalities of what came with their authority that was given to them by men. Namely, we get to say who gets to teach here. And they're, they're completely using it in a way of almost saying, like, we don't want to acknowledge what we've seen and what we've heard about this one, this Jesus. And I'm here to say that opposition to Jesus has not changed all the way up until this day. Jesus is calling people to repent the dead works the idolatry the way that you live the godlessness that you take in jesus is from this time until now is still telling people stop but mankind is a rebel he rebels against his creator he sets up authority that pleases him or her, and makes gods of our own making because we like to make easy, convenient gods, particularly ones that look quite a bit like us. Self-serving, simple, easy to tell us, you're good. But when the creator of all things comes down in humiliation, and tells men and women, you are a sinner. And you must be saved. Then people run to all these other authority structures. Imagine the scene. Here comes Messiah, the long-awaited one. He's already made his presence known in Passover by what he did by overturning the tables. And now he's coming to temple and he didn't ask permission. He's teaching. And they go, wait, 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 he didn't. He's not on the, he's not on the docket today. Okay, we got him. We got him. You were not, you were not in here for the one o'clock today. It's one o'clock. Time for you to go. Or we'll have the officers come and remove you. Have you ever been to a, a conference before and had a, a group of speakers and you know who's on, he's coming next, she's going next, this is what's happening next, and then some random guy just gets up and starts talking? No one in the room goes, this is okay. And so here is, though, this one. Different from some random man, different from someone trying to bring attention to themselves, here comes the creator of life. Here comes the shaper and redeemer of the human spirit. And he comes to teach people in temple when he's already called judgment on temple. And he's like, all this is about to change. And here come his opponents. He entered the temple. The chief priests, the elders of the people came up to him while he was teaching and asked, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Now, this is the easiest answer in all the world. 
It's not, it's not, his answer could have been very similar to the case of when he talks about, if I wanted to, I could be surrounded by angels right now. Whose authority do you come by? Really? What they're asking is, who told you you could teach from God's law in God's temple at this time without asking us? This is the blindness. This is the madness of sin. We have not given you authority to teach God's law in God's temple, Jesus of Nazareth. And so why are you here? That is what they're asking him. And so in the audacity and the madness of their own unbelief, in the desire of their own authority, in the hubris of fallen man, they believe once again We've got him. He was not scheduled. We don't have anything on him. What he had to do in an instant like this, this is actually, there's some, if you enjoy reading first century uh, Jewish history, you'll see that one of the things that would happen here is he would immediately have to stop speaking and prove where his commission came from. Meaning, an unscheduled or unknown speaker in temple during a high holiday had to have said something along the lines that Paul gives when he gives his own kind of history when he says, well, I was born here and I'm of the Pharisaical party and I was taught under Gamaliel and I've done. And then they would go, okay, we can check all that and then we'll acknowledge that you, okay, you have the right commission and the ability to teach on the law and now maybe you can. So they're asking for his origin. Isn't that hilarious? They're asking for Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ of the Most High God. Where is your papers and prove your origin so that we might know you're allowed to speak here from God's word in God's temple? If you don't see the reality, talking about a book that's talking about indwelling sin and the power that it has over you. If you don't understand the reality of the sin nature, here it is before you. Religious authorities who had memorized God's law and were waiting for Messiah, and Messiah is standing before them reading God's law in God's temple, who he gave the designs for. And they tell him, you didn't ask our permission. And tell us your origin. Tell us where you get the authority to do such a thing. Now, Jesus' whole story in the Gospel of Matthew and most of the Gospels is a suppression of his authority. It's a willful suppression of the glory that was due him. When he comes and takes on flesh, that is a willful suppression of his glory and a taking up of humiliation in order to ultimately be the one perfect Passover lamb. And it's Passover. And his time of sacrifice is near. 
and his indignities have not reached their height yet. And in this we see the commitment and the love of Christ for the Father and for those whom the Father has given to him as to the point of of this, by whose authority do you teach God's word in God's temple to God's people? Authority, you say. So Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. That sounds like a deal. The baptism of John, from where did it come from? From heaven or from man? Ooh, not such a good deal anymore. Here was their problem, and they spell it out later. John was viewed as an actual prophet, not just by the people, but by the religious authorities themselves. Was John's baptism <clears throat> from heaven or from man? Now he's talking to a bunch of men who've made up authority about themselves, or at least the culture has. Their authority is is not bound in Scripture. Their authority, like the authority of the Sanhedrin, is something that had developed historically. And so now, in their own authority, they're judging whether or not someone can teach God's law in God's temple. And then Jesus says, if you answer my question, I'll happily tell you the authority, where I have the authority and where it comes from. Was John's baptism from heaven or from man? He's making a clear distinction. He's making a case for antithesis. It it has to be one or the other. You don't get to kind of ride the fence. It's not one or the other. It's either from God or it's made up. That's in essence what he's asking them. Was John's baptism from God or was it just made up? And so he puts this this crisis now in their lap. And, and, and I, this is the, the, the crux of the argument, and so I can, you can paraphrase almost the rest of it, or, or if you have it from memory. Because what happens next? What happens next is they gather around each other, and now the reader becomes an audience member where they're watching something that you can picture in your mind. Here's Jesus amongst a crowd of people teaching in temples. Passover is near. And now come the authorities, they're marching up, it's a conflict. Where do you have the ability? You didn't ask permission to do this. Where's the authority that you're able to do this? And I'll answer your question if you answer my question. Where did John's baptism come from? The crowds are watching, they're listening. Here's the opponents of Jesus. And now they huddle up together and they begin whispering to one another. Well, if we say it this way, if we say it's from heaven, or it's from then 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 he's right. If and if they say it from He's from man, then the people will rebel because he believed he was a prophet. One of the concerns that they have, of course, is that great phrase. If we say it's from heaven, Jesus is going to ask us, then why don't you believe him? And you may be wondering, like, what does that mean? Well, there's many things it would mean. Number one, it would mean they really are a den of poisonous snakes. Because that's what 
judgment John renders on at least the Pharisees that he sees by his baptisms. There's a few other things that John said. In particular, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Said it in a crowd. Said it out loud. And then he baptized them. And the triune God makes himself known. The voice from heaven is spoken. You see, John's baptism, if he was a prophet commissioned by the Most High God, then that means Jesus is who John said he was. John was the forerunner from Malachi 3.1, the one who had become before the Messiah and he would make his way. And so when John comes and he's calling people to repent and be baptized, he's doing it in preparation for Christ. He wants them to know, I am the voice in the wilderness. I am the one called to make the path straight because he is coming. That's what we said. That was all the way back when we started this gospel. He is coming, so repent. And that message now for three years after John has faded away and been murdered has proven true that this one, this Messiah, is calling people to repent because the kingdom is at hand. He's calling them to do Everything to cast away all traditions and all things that hold them back from serving God, but only a few follow. The rest wonder and others are outwardly hostile. Is that not still the way? When Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ, goes out to the crowds, Is it not still the way that only a few actually believe? You may look in our culture today and be amazed at, say, megachurches with 20,000 membership roles and all this stuff. Like if you are in any way in a fantasy world that believes that all of those people actually believe, I already said it. You're in a fantasy world. The gospel goes out and people will listen for a time. Maybe even make it part of their cultural pastime on a Sunday. We're going to church. Time to dress this way. Time to talk that way for a couple hours. And then as soon as we leave, it's just back to the normal The whole week goes by, nothing really changes. Oh, it's Sunday again. We live in Texas. When I grew up, I had to go to church every Sunday, so we go to church every Sunday. That's not, that's not the Christian faith. That's just a social structure. Something you do. Not something that defines why you live and breathe. 
Not something that drives you every moment of your life to be confronted. How may I glorify the risen Christ? The one who has all authority on earth and heaven and whom one day all knees will bow and tongues confess that he is Lord. How am I going to this day enveloped in fallen flesh and yet renewed in my spirit? How will I this day acknowledge his complete and absolute authority over my entire life. It's beginning until it's never ending. His full authority. Recognition of Christ's authority in your life is properly glorifying the Most High God. Do you understand? What's being robbed of Christ in this instance is his actual glory that was his by his existence. And yet because in his humiliation, he suppresses it. This is another lamentful tale. This is another moment of the unbelief of man before the beauty of Christ. The rebellion of man against the Most High God. Who did John's baptism come from? The prophet who speaks the words of God and pointed to me, if he could say, as the Lamb of God. But our hearts, the heart of unbelief, the heart of man in his natural state. What type of gymnastics must we do in order to deny him his glory? If you have a problem understanding those who are outside the faith or in unbelief, or if your moment of, of redemption and salvation was so long ago, or you were very young and you don't remember it, but if you were an adult when you came to faith and you remember... The, the absolute insanity and the reason and the fleeing from the truth of God. If we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus. We don't know. Has there ever been a lamer? Answer, we're the religious authorities of Israel who get to decide who teaches God's law and God's temple on a high holiday like Passover because we've been educated and we have a certain origin and we, we have all these credentials. Where was John's baptism from? We don't know. It wasn't the we don't know. It was the fear of having to confront their own sinfulness. If they say John's baptism is from heaven, then Jesus could rightly say, then why don't you listen to him? Because he says, I am the Lamb of God. And the centurion believes it. And the woman who was bleeding believes it. And the lepers believe it. And my tax collector believes it. And my fishermen believe it. And oh, by the way, some Pharisees believe it. They all know who I am. His authority 
is the highest authority. And our hope comes from that reality. Who is Christ? He's creator. He's redeemer. He'll also be judge. And he'll also be king. And the fact that one day this kingdom of his will be in its fullness, in all of its glory, and that we will be a part of that kingdom as citizens. He's chosen to reside in it, in which he has done all the work in preparation. He's given you faith. God has given you the spirit. God has given you the power here and now for this moment of this breath of our life that we have now in order to do one thing, pursue him, glorify him, cling to him, hold fast to him, no matter where you are in life, whether you're at your highest high or at your lowest low, every time that that comes, no matter what's coming at you at life, to Christ we cling, to the cross we render ourselves, and in all ways at all times, being reminded he is my strength. He is my purpose. And to him I owe all the praise and all the adoration because he has the highest authority. And that is why we are secure in our faith. Heavenly Father, I pray, God, that by the power of your word and spirit, we would be overjoyed that one day you will receive the glory due your name. That one day you will reveal yourself in glory to the world, in judgment, in resurrection of the dead. in the fullness of your kingdom. And your name will be shouted and praised forevermore. And we, your church, will be participants. Strengthen us as we are drawn away by our own nature and the world around us at all times. Center our focus on you, Lord by the power of the Spirit. Let us not cease fellowshipping with one another, rather seek each other out. Let us lift one another up in prayer, admonition, and joy. In full recognition of whatever fellowship we share, ultimately we know we will share an eternal fellowship as brothers and sisters in your kingdom. May your name continue to be glorified in our public worship. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.